and turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. We'll be reading this <coughs> chapter in its entirety, even though we'll be focusing on the last half of it today. But Ezra chapter 3, <coughs> it's on your large print sheets, but it's also, if you're using a pew Bible, it is also found <coughs> on page 638, <clears throat> page 638, and continuing over on to page 639. <clears throat> Ezra, chapter 3 starting on page 638 of your pew Bible, hear now the very word of God. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. For fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. They set the altar on its basis. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering, and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. <clears throat> From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, <clears throat> Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua, Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, as ro arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests st 
stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons, uh, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang to one another, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we're going to be looking particularly at the last half, as I said, of Ezra chapter 3, in which we see that those returning from exile begin to rebuild the temple and also respond to its being rebuilt those returning from exile begin to rebuild the temple and respond to its being rebuilt. But we want to remind ourselves of what we mentioned last week in terms of the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 7. In that first section of chapter 3, we saw the reestablishment of true religion in Israel the reestablishment, even apart from the temple or even the foundation being laid, we saw the reestablishment of true religion in Israel. There was, of course, as we saw last week, the preparation for worship, and then the sacrifices and feast. Remember last week we focused on verse 3, though fear or because fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. They set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. Remember last week we talked about how when we we see the, the atonement, we see the sacrifice of Christ, it fundamentally, of course, has to do with our relationship with God And the fact that our sins have been laid upon Christ, the wrath of God is poured poured out upon his son Jesus, and so that we can be reconciled to God. And yet at the same time, as that is taking place, there are other things that that were happening as well, including the fact that in that atonement of Christ, Satan's back was broken, if you will, or as uh, Jesus said, he was binding the strong man in order to spoil his kingdom, in order to spoil his house. 
uh, and and or in the words of Colossians 2 that we looked at last week, uh, how it is the Lord then who is uh, who is triumphing, who is being victorious over his enemies, including Satan and the wicked angels. He's making a show of them. He's destroying them, if you will, by means of that. And here you find something of that in verse 3, because fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. Well, what did they do? But they particularly offered burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord as a symbol and as pointing forward, of course, to that sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Now, the passage for today, the passage for today then, uh, starting in verse 8, has to do with events seven months after religious services were reestablished and about one year after their initial return. So the, notice what it says here. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. So this would have been the month E-R, I-Y-Y-A-R, funny word, the month called E-R, I-Y-Y-A-R, April to May, about 536 B.C. Now, why is it significant that we have this date here? Well, first of all, it tells us that they did not waste any time in getting down to business. They did not waste any time in getting down to business. Uh, this month is the same one that is mentioned in 1 Kings 6.1 and 2 Chronicles 3.2. And uh, it is also the most logical month for this because it was after the spring rains and the early harvest of flax and barley. By the way, once again, it emphasizes, does it not, the fact that the Bible is rooted in history. And so when, uh, unlike, you, you look at so many other religious books that have nothing to do with history. And it's obviously the imaginations of men or the suggestions of Satan. But one of the reasons why we know the Bible is true is because it is rooted in history. You see this time and time and time and time again. It's so, we, even chapter 2, a couple of weeks ago, I know, I know people thought, like we said, those were the, uh, that was the uh, insomnia part of the Bible have trouble sleeping, just go there and start reading, right? But there was importance to that, to all those lists of names, if for no other reason than to show that these were real people, flesh and blood people, in space and time, and that these events really took place. We see that in Dr. Luke, writing Luke and writing the book of Acts very clearly. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, in terms of the what's going on politically in the Roman world, what's going on in, in Palestine at that time. And this is all a way of God saying to us, this is not some fairy tale, but it's true. It's real, just like looking at a history book. So let's first of all look at the rebuilders then, the rebuilders that is to say, those that were engaged in this building. 
notice that all the people now, all the people, verse 8, all the people were getting involved. First of all, Zerubbabel, who was the civil leader, Jeshua, the, we might say, the church leader, the ecclesiastical leader, to use the fancy term, the church leader, the religious leader, the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, but also all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem. So this is something in which the people themselves as a whole were being involved. Now, there were, there were particular people that were, uh, that were engaged in this work in a particular way, and that is the Levites from age 20 years and above to oversee this work. So 20 years old and upward at age 20, they would have been mature enough to do this work. And so the Levites and the priests were superintending this work to guarantee ritual correctness. And specifically then, what is it talking about here? It talks about Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, Hodaviah, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. Now, a couple things to note here by way of, of, um, uh, of taking an overview of this. The first thing is, notice the importance of families. Notice it talks about Cadme, Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah, and so forth. The importance of families. Families should worship together, and that families should be involved in kingdom work together. You've heard the saying, I mentioned it, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, the family that prays together stays together, and indeed it is true. Not only that, but they stand up together. Notice it, verse 9, they arose as one. They stand up together to oversee those working on the house of God. This, once again, is a reminder of Psalm 133. Behold, what a good thing it is when brethren delight to dwell together in unity. And then, of course, there were workmen that are also mentioned here. There were workmen, namely the masons and carpenters, back in verse 7. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant, the permission, which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. But we see, first of all, the rebuilders. And secondly, we see the rebuilding. The rebuilding. What are they doing? What is the object of their labors? Well, it is, of course, the temple or the house of God at Jerusalem. It is the temple of the house of the Lord. Remember that temple, that was Solomon's temple, had been destroyed. It was a magnificent temple, it was a magnificent building. Think in your mind's eye of some wonderful building, maybe some that you've seen. Maybe you've seen the White House, maybe you've seen Congress or the State Capitol building, let's say. You've seen, I'm sure you've seen the State Capitol building. 
it seems like it's going to be there forever, but suppose it was destroyed. Well, that's what they had. That was the situation that they found themselves in. And so they were here to rebuild that temple. Their work specifically mentioned here uh, was that uh, with regard to the foundation, laying the foundation, quite possibly restoring it or repairing it, uh, but in any case, first of all, dealing with the foundation. And so we find then that that is the object of their labors, the rebuilding of the temple. And now we come, thirdly, to the responses. Having seen the rebuilders and the rebuilding, now we come to the responses. And the first response that we have here is that of rejoicing. Rejoicing. Notice that they came to the house of God at Jerusalem, verse 8. They came, they had to make a conscious choice. They were coming as it were, before God. And of course, as they did, they were coming to celebrate. Notice the priest and the Levites are involved in this rejoicing. The priest, a special class of Israelites, those who would actually offer up the the animal sacrifices, Uh, the Levites, the priest helpers. The Levites were the priest helpers. Uh, Some of these, of course, would have been the sons of Asaph, who was, as you notice there in verse 10, the sons of Asaph. Asaph was a chief musician. And so the priest and the priestly tribe of the Levites. Notice uh, their apparel here, verse 10, the priests stood in their apparel, or in other words, in their garments. And so this harkens back to Exodus 28, as well as 2 Chronicles 5 and verse 12, in terms of these special priestly garments that they would have worn. But more than that, notice something here. They were using musical instruments, and two in particular are mentioned, the trumpets, and the cymbals, C-Y-M-B-A-L-S, the trumpets and the cymbals. Now, the trumpets were long, straight trumpets, and at the end, they'd have those flaring ends, you know, they'd have that, like, bell-shaped at the end. These would have been made of silver. The uh, shofar was a trumpet originally made of horns of animals, Uh, and then eventually were imitated in metal, especially bronze or brass. Now, we read today from Numbers chapter 10. It's a very interesting passage. It's the, the text of the trumpets, we might say. Numbers chapter 10, the first 10 verses, in which God said to Moses, make two silver trumpets for yourself. Make them of hammered work. You will use them for calling the congregation and directing the movement of the camps. So this was for uh, military-type movements. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps on the south side shall begin their journey, and so forth. Notice verse 9. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, 
Then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. There's a military dimension to this, but also a triumphal direction of, in terms of this, in terms of the, the blowing of the trumpets. They were used to call God's people to holy battle. But more than that, they were played specifically over the sacrifices. They were played over the sacrifices. If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 12, you see this. And the Levites, who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, strings, instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. By the way, we see that in our current text in Ezra as well, that refrain from Psalm 136. That the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud, so the priest could not continue in ministry because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so the trumpets then were used in terms of these sacrifices. You see the same thing in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles in verse 6. And the priest attended this is when, verse 5, the King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God, verse 6, and the priests attended to their services, the Levites also with instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priest sounded trumpets opposite them, while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, and so forth. So we see then that the trumpets had a civil usage, a civic usage, even in terms, even in military terms, but it very definitely had a ceremonial usage particularly with regard to the sacrifices and the sacrificial system. And then, of course, the symbols, the symbols. Um, we know what symbols are in terms of clanging instruments, percussion instruments, clanging. The name, interestingly, is always in the plural or dual form, indicating the instrument had more than one part. Some might even be pitched higher than others. Psalm 150 talks about the high-sounding symbols, so they might be different, different tones uh, to them. Uh, they might even help keep time for the choir of the Levites, but in a general sense, they were certainly expressive of joy. So, why then these particular instruments in here in Ezra chapter 3? Well, first of all, to praise the Lord. 
and indeed to show the unspeakable joy to have the temple once again. This use of the instruments pointed to the, or the, the temple pointed to the saving of the nation. It pointed to the returning favor of God. And there was also joy at the beginning of better things. How is it then that these were used? Well, they were used, as we read here, after the order of David, king of Israel. David was a type of Christ. As royalty, he was a type of Jesus Christ who was the king over the church. And so he is the one who established the use of, uh, of the instruments with regard to the temple. Once again, we see, as we saw previously in Ezra, what we call the regulative principle of worship. That is to say, doing according to God's command in terms of his worship. Now, notice not, also, not even, not as well as, I should say, the rejoicing by the priest and Levites, Notice also the singing of praise, the singing of praise here. Although it's, you'll notice that at the end of verse 11, it says that all the people shout it with a great shout. Now, that term for shout can also mean make a joyful noise, like Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. And so there is often a connection then with the singing of praise, and I believe that's what we find here. And so all the people, all the people were engaged in this shouting, or we would say the loud singing of praise, singing one to another, not necessarily responsively, but the idea then being that as the song of praise goes up, it also goes out, just like as, we, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and songs which are spiritual. The point, though, there is that as we sing praise to God through the psalms and hymns and songs which are spiritual, which he has ordained, there is also an edification, at least what we find here also. But notice, because in point of fact, that all of this singing, all this praising, all of this giving thanks, what is the focus? It was to God. It was to the Lord. When they, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. That's the focus. That's why we sing in worship fundamentally is because we are praising the Lord. So what did they sing? Well, notice here, we've already sung a portion of Psalm 136 today. And Lord willing, at the end of the service, we will sing the latter part of that psalm with its refrain, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. In other words, this is inspired verse. This is inspired song. It is inspired material, not man-made material, not songs of human composition, but rather that which the Spirit himself has given. This refrain tells us something of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. 
for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever toward Israel. The reviving of the church when apparently dead, the reviving of the church when apparently dead, uh, is due to his mercy forever. And so it's because, that's why we praise God for his mercy and for his loving kindness. Notice also, God is, is, for he is good, is hearkening back to the idea that he is faithful to his covenant. He, his love, his mercy, chesed, is a covenantal, a pledged love, not merely, not merely mercy or compassion or goodness in general, but rather it is because he is bound to us by means of his covenant. So we have the singing of praise here, and as we have suggested, it was done as if with a great shout. This is often the shout of victory in war. This is the shout of victory in war. There is a triumph here, and that's what we find. That's what we hear in terms of this shouting of praise. This loud noise attracts the attention of God's enemies. The singing of praise goes out to unbelievers and to the world. And this, of course, can arouse great opposition. But why is it that they were shouting this praise? Because the Lord's house was being rebuilt. How great, my friends, to be able to rejoice in God. How great it is for you and me to be able to rejoice in God and to shout his praise. First of all, because of his glory, because God is God. Secondly, because of his covenant, a covenant that is sealed with the blood of Jesus. And thirdly, because of his salvation for his people. For truly, my friends, God is good and his mercy endures forever. But now we come to verse 12. Not only do we have rejoicing, but there's another response. And it is that of weeping, that of weeping. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses from about 59 years or so prior to this, 59, 60 years prior to this, some of them would have remembered that original temple. Just like if we look at the Capitol building in Atlanta, you imagine if somehow that was destroyed. Remember the Georgia Dome? We did have a building that was destroyed, didn't we? Right? we had a more magnificent one in its place, but nevertheless, you get the point here. Remember when it was imploded? We saw pictures of that and so forth. And instead of having the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, what was, be, what was replacing that Georgia Dome, as it were, what was replacing it now was just a small little thing that was not nearly as grand or as rich or as wonderful or as beautiful as what the original had been. So why were they weeping? 
Well, they saw the poor, small prep in comparison to the preparations that had been made by Solomon to build that first temple. Furthermore, the temple did not have the chief glory of the other. It didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. As we saw uh, back in chapter 2, it didn't have the Urim and the Thummim, which was a way of the people, uh, of the priests, being able to give, get an answer from God, whether yes or no, and didn't have the Urim and Thummim either. The building and the foundation stones were inferior both for size and for price. The whole complex of buildings was much, the original ones were much, was much bigger. The whole complex of buildings was much bigger than what they had right then in front of them. So yes, there was joy, but at the same time, there was weeping. They were crying. Some of it may have been mourning for sin, but it was nevertheless not a good thing for them to mingle tears with the rejoicing and so to cast a wet blanket over the scene. But that's what they were doing. As one person, one commentary says, in the harmony of public joys, let us not be jarring strings. Let us not be jarring strings. When and where then was, was this weeping done? Verse 13, at the same time as the singing or the shouting of praise was taking place. And you notice in verse 13, the people could not discern from a distance, you know, the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Now, I have three points of application today, and the first is this. The first is in terms of lessons with regard to work. Lessons with regard to work. There should be a hardiness, there should be a willingness, there should be an eagerness when we work, just in general terms. You know the old, the old song, whistle while you work? As well, well begun is, is half ended. Whenever there's a good work to be done, don't delay to do it. <clears throat> and particularly then when we're talking about kingdom work. And of course, everyone should be involved. It will go well when ministers and piety agree on the good work. Within the church, there is a proper division of labor. And so, first of all, in terms of work, let us have unity and let us in, enter into it <coughs> uh, with joy and with earnestness and with heartiness. Secondly, lessons regarding worship. My friends, we owe worship to God. We owe worship to God. And we should be reminded by this passage that we should let God be praised no matter what the circumstances are. We should let him be owned as good. He is good. 
no matter what the circumstances are, even if the temple here was not, or the, the uh, preparations for the temple, not nearly what the original temple was, but nevertheless, that was God's plan at that point. So no matter how you feel, let God be worshipped. We owe worship to God. Remember also, in terms of worship, remember the priesthood of all saints. All are to participate. Now, in the Old Testament here, we have, of course, the Levitical choirs. But remember, verse 11, then all the people shouted with a great shout. All are to participate. And now that the sacrificial system is gone, all of us believers are to sing, are to participate in the singing of praise. The congregation is the choir. People sometimes ask me, do you have a choir? I said, yes. It's the entire congregation. Every one of us participates. As my mom used to say, she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But it doesn't matter because it's, it's from what is in the heart in terms of the singing of praise. And this priesthood of all believers, this priesthood of all believers is highlighted by means of the change in worship from Old Testament to New Testament. The New Testament worship has a simplicity to it. It's not a, a big show. There's a simplicity to it. The Old Testament elements of ceremony, all the elaborate ceremonies, all the elaborate rituals, which were good for the time, but nevertheless, if they were to be used today, would tend to obscure the gospel. In the same way that if we were to burn incense today in our church, or if we were to sacrifice animals today in our church, we would obscure the gospel and undercut the idea that the one final sacrifice has been made by Jesus at the cross. And this principle, of course, applies to the instruments as well. The trumpets, the cymbals, the handbells, and so forth. They're all part of that ceremonial system that has been fulfilled by Christ. So, lessons regarding work, lessons regarding worship. Now, finally, lessons regarding salvation. It's been suggested that one of the reasons why the people were weeping, these priests and Levites, heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, it has been suggested that one of the reasons why that is true is because they had focused, they, they, they were thinking back to the original temple and all of the magnificence and the richness and the glory and the gold and so forth. And so the application then would be, don't be a materialist with regard to spiritual things. By faith, look past the outwardly inglorious building. It wasn't great what was being set up in comparison to Solomon's temple, but look past that to the one coming, Jesus, who is the true temple. Be grateful 
that this that at least there was going to be a temple, at least the sacrifices were going to be offered, pointing forward to the true temple who is going to be coming. Therefore, don't weep like many of those who in our passage could not see the underlying spiritual reality. Don't be a materialist with regard to spiritual things. But rather, my friends, see the true picture of salvation. It required the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. It involves great rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And it has to do with lifting an eternal song of praise to the one who has had mercy, for he is good. And his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we thank thee for the one who is the true temple, the one who has fulfilled all of the sacrifices, indeed the entire sacrificial system. We thank thee, Father, that because of him, we can indeed utter forth the shout of praise with enthusiasm, with liveliness, with love. And so, our Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, the one who himself sang in the midst of the brethren, who sings in our midst today, we pray, Father, that thou wouldst enable us in Jesus' name to offer the sacrifice of praise. And so apply this message to our hearts, O God. Give us joy, the joy of the Holy Ghost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 136.